Hello and welcome to an episode of the Music History Project. Today we are going to embark on a long, strange trip talking about one of the most innovative and influential bands out there, The Grateful Dead. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Ashley Allison. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. That collection is over 4,000 interviews and constantly growing. If you'd like to check out any of our other content that's not featured, head over to nam.org library. And welcome back. This week's episode, we are going to be talking all things Grateful Dead, including some great interviews from one of the band members, Mickey Hart, as well as other people that have been uh, influential within the band, as well as the show experience, including Donna Jean Godshock, Michael Paul, Bob Heal, Rick Turner, and Helen Meyer. What I love about this podcast, just like so many others of the Music History Project, bringing together interviews from the NAM Oral History Collection, is that we have a different take than maybe other organizations might have, blending together a real live Grateful Dead member, which is cool, uh, along with some other people that maybe you wouldn't have thought of that were uh, tied to the band or influenced the band or provided gear for the band. We're going to hear from the great Bob Heil, uh, who uh, created microphones and, and sound equipment for the pro audio world for many years. All kinds of different people who have tied themselves and their career to the Grateful Dead over the years. So I really, I love that about this podcast. Um, and I think you're really going to enjoy this. You know, I grew up in the Bay Area. I went to high school in Menlo Park, not too far away from Palo Alto, which is where the band originated in uh, 1965, I believe. And so it was really a part of that area that uh, was very proud of what the band was able to do. And it's really neat to think of the blend of music. You know, when you're talking about a band that fuses one genre of music together, that's pretty impressive, right? I mean, that creates something new. What the Grateful Dead did is fuse just about every musical style you can think of (laughs) together. I mean, I, I don't really know a style of music that wasn't blended in that mixer, you know, with uh, with uh, jazz and bluegrass probably being often just as influential in a riff or a song as psychedelic rock or folk music. I mean, it was really a neat, neat gathering of very talented people who brought together all kinds of different feelings and expressions through music. And I think those lengthy uh, instrumental jams, which they're quite known for, had a lot going on. It wasn't just something riffing for 40 minutes. There was a lot of counterculture in there, you know, a lot of meaning, a lot of substance. And I think that's one of the things that they're so endeared for. You know, the recognition that they've gotten over the years, I think, is, you know, being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, having never really had a number one hit record, for example, is proof that 
what they did was uh, extremely unique and influential. And it's going to be great to reflect on what those contributions have been as we listen to a variety of people talking about it. So let's start this episode off with a bang, hearing from someone who is actually in the band, Mickey Hart. He is going to be talking about his passion for music and how he became a drummer. Well, I grew up in the 50s in New York, and the streets were wild with a Latin music, Tito Puente, Tito Rodriguez, uh, Machito, um, all of these uh, very powerful Latin American clave rhythms were reaching the streets of New York City <clears throat> and exploding what you know now as salsa. So the music was blaring out of all of the houses <clears throat> at the time, so it was really hard to miss this polyrhythmic rush of um, rhythm. And also, uh, my mom did have a collection of Count Basie records and Duke Ellington records. In the middle of it, there were the old UNESCO, I guess, or Folkways records and Pygmy music and all these uh, other uh, third world or indigenous musics that were on 78s that I really took keenly to. So my influences were from out there. When I was five, six, seven years old, I was listening to you know, Tory Rainforest music and stuff. Mm. So that certainly uh, tweaked my ear uh, to another reality besides the Latin music. And I also came from a military uh, rudimental background in drumming. My dad was a world champion rudimental drummer, and my mother was also a world champion rudimental drummer. So, but there wasn't any drumming in the house. My dad had left uh, when I was a baby, and my mom taught me the rudiments. But I knew the legacy, and I guess I was coded for it, you know, coming, you know, being the, uh, the spawn of two uh, heavyweight drummers certainly couldn't have hel uh, hurt. <laughs> so I guess it was part of my DNA. So, and so I really didn't have much choice in that matter. Of course, I could have done anything. My mom never encouraged me, except when she saw that I couldn't stop. Then she knew that it was no use to stop me. And she didn't want me to grow up to be a musician because in her world, there was no money in music and the rudimental drumming and drum corps. It was just for sport. So she was right in not encouraging me. But when she saw that it was just futile, she, um, she said, when you're ready, I'll teach you. And eventually I was ready. Maybe I was, I got serious, maybe at seven or eight or nine or whatever. And I was just playing on the pad until then. And then she taught me the rudiments and that's where that started. So I've been able to navigate through different kinds of musical loves over the years and that has refreshed my attitude, not let me burn out, because you can burn out on your own music if you don't find influences that really trigger some kind of emotional response and bring you to the table and learn different sounds and grooves and ways of other people and understand the real meaning behind music and why there is music and why there is no culture on this earth that does not have a music. So music is more, is more like a necessity uh, in life and is responsible for the evolution of our species in a very large way in the development of our brain. So once you get into these emotional and um, issues and 
issues of the subconscious uh, and dreams and you know once you start dreaming the music and all of a sudden you understand that it is you and you are part of it and then you're resonating with something that happened a long time ago perhaps 13.7 billion years ago which was the moment that uh, this universe was blown into creation you know when the uh, the Big Bang, specifically, you know, when um, th this arrhythmic event, and that we're living as part of this evolution of the planets, of the um, the stars, uh, of cosmic matter uh, that uh, created uh, our galaxy: the sun, the moon, the earth, the trees, the animals, us. So it's not just about drums and drumming; it's more like in training with the larger, more powerful rhythms of the universe. That's what I've come to uh, uh, um, to understand, and that's why I play because I'm trying to connect. They're like your, you know, those cosmic epic events are like the things that blew you into existence. You could call that moment of creation uh, God, which I do. I mean, if there is a God, it certainly is not a man or a woman. It's an arrhythmic event. And so I pretty well have figured out my cosmology. And of course, it's perfect for a rhythmist. I just happen to be fortunate enough to play a, a vibrating membrane, just like this, what the scientists, the uh, astrophysicists, um, describe the universe as, you know, m membranes moving back and forth, expanding and contracting, two things that it does. It pulses, the universe pulses and it spins. Those are the two basic um, uh, energies in the universe that keeps it all together. Pythagoras knew about it in 300 BC. I mean, the, uh, the father of the science of music. Uh, the brilliant philosopher, mathematician, that, you know, that discovered the octave, the temperate scale. The fifth, the seventh. And he put uh, uh, musical equations to all of the heavens. And that's how he explained the rotation of the universe and so forth and how it all holds together and that whole Pythagorean thing. And now we know that science knows that Pythagoras was pretty damn close, man. He heard the sonorities of the universe. Obviously, he didn't have ears to hear them because, you know, the ear is not equipped to hear. Uh, the, those cosmic events, but obviously there was some kind of mystical flight involved where he was able to determine that the universe was music and um, hence the father of the science of music. So that's my 25 words or less cosmology of why I do this uh, and, and it seems to have gotten me to this one place where I'm doing very very little sublunar work these days. Most of the work I'm doing now is translating light waves <clears throat> uh, into sound waves and, and having a conversation with the cosmos. I mean, I play music, I go out on the road and play, you know, groove-based music, you know, sublunar music, but most of my work is done now in the heavens, in the, in the, or in the cosmos, but the heavens. I don't know, it, where heaven is. I mean, there's no P.O. box for heaven, but whatever. You understand. It's a word. What was your first kit? My first kit? I still have it. No kidding. My mother gave it away after I left. You know, it was in the basement. He gave it to a cousin of mine. But 20 years ago, he sent it to me. It had a hole in the bass drum where someone had put a, his foot in the, in the shell. And it was all rickety and a snare drum and a hi-hat and a two tom-toms. It was a Ludwig 
It was a pearl, blue pearl, I think it was, something like that. But I have it in, my, uh, in, in one of my, um, my storage uh, bins. So once again, that was Mickey Hart, a drummer for the Grateful Dead, uh, getting all philosophical on us. Really cool to hear his voice. Uh, a little fun fact, he joined the Grateful Dead in 1967 and has been with the band ever since. So that is quite the accomplishment. And we'll be hearing from him again a little bit later on in this podcast. So now that we've heard from an actual dead, we are going to now listen to, um, she was a singer with the dead, uh, Donna Jean Godchuk has a fantastic backstory uh, working with Muscle Shoals and just having such a great career. But she talks specifically here about her experience of moving to California and being introduced to the dead and her uh, slow or quick, actually, probably uh, understanding of how fantastic they were and how she had to be a part of, of that movement. So uh, here we go, listening to Donna Jean Godchuk. Yeah, I was going to ask you about your your dead experience. How did that come about? Well, I had uh, just wanted to go to California all my life. I just wanted that experience. I and I wanted a new adventure in my life. You know, I had lived basically uh, in the South and mostly in Alabama all my life. And I, I wanted to go to California. I wanted a new adventure. And even though I had a lucrative career here in Muscle Shoals, I just had this itch that had to be scratched. I had to go to California. And uh, a friend of mine who happens to be Roger Hawkins' wife now, Brenda Hawkins, uh, she and her cousin had moved out there, which gave me the, the impetus and the uh, just the nerve to get up and go. So I did that, and once I got out there, everybody was into the Grateful Dead. And I had heard of the Grateful Dead, but I, I didn't know anything about it. And they tried to um, get me to go to a concert, and I said, I'm not inter interested, you know. I don't think they know how to play music. Because in Muscle Shoals and Memphis and in Nashville, and everything was arranged and produced and everybody kind of knew what, what they were supposed to do. And, uh, and the Grateful Dead was the absolute opposite from that perspective. And so I, I didn't care anything about it. And, and they made me eventually go to a concert. And uh, I was in the back row of the Winterland Arena in San Francisco. And I heard that band and I, I, it just blew my mind. that they, And I said, how do they do that? Because nothing was arranged. It just happened spontaneously. It was very spontaneous, kind of jazz-like in a way, but not, in that so many kinds of music were incorporated into the Grateful Dead sound, which ultimately translated into the rock and roll world. And... Uh, I just turned to the person next to me and I said, when I sing again, it's going to be with that band. Because I didn't go out there necessarily to, you know, try to find another musical thing to get involved in. I just wanted the adventure of going to California. And when I heard that band, I said, I'm going to, that's the band I'm going to sing with when I sing again. Did they have a backup band? Did they have girl singers? No. At that time? No. Mm-mm. 
I, I was the only, from beginning to end, the only female singer in the band. And it wasn't really, the thing with the Grateful Dead is it wasn't background singing, it was ensemble singing. And so I was on the front row with the guys, the, you know, for 10 years, nearly 10 years. And uh, it was an ensemble singing variation to the background singing that you usually see. So it was, it was a trip. <laughs> So did you first perform or record with them? What was your first? I first performed with them. And the thing is, uh, I had, my singing had only been in the studio, earphones. So I had never had any kind of stage experience. And, and I left out an important part that I had married after we got totally into the Grateful Dead. I met and married Keith Godshow, and who was a fabulous keyboard player. Grew up playing um, Beethoven and Bach, you know, classical background, and then jazz. And he, he learned on the fly how to play rock and roll. So my first performance on stage with anybody was New Year's Eve, Winterland, San Francisco, California, 1971. And I was thrust out there on stage. Not only had I not been a performer, but with the boys club of the Grateful Dead and, and the, the audience, the, the deadheads, the fans, like, who in the world is this chick? getting up here with my guys, you know. So I had to battle through a lot in order to hang in there. But like I said, I was never going to take no for an answer. And so I battled through that and, uh, and it was wonderful. That lasted for, let's see, before I even get there, uh, I went straight from there to Europe 72, which is one of the Grateful Dead's most famous albums. Uh, so I went straight from, from there to New York, where we did a bunch of gigs before we went to Europe. So that was also this little Alabama girl you know, getting on the plane and, you know, going to Europe and standing in front of those crowds and, mm -hmm. you know, eventually, and not even eventually, but shortly thereafter, I mean, we were playing um, hockey rinks and, you know, like uh, Boston Garden and places that big, like 50,000 people. And, so I, I went from nothing to everything, let's just put it that way. And once again, I was in the right place at the right time because we, uh, we did, Keith and I didn't know that they needed a keyboard player. And they wanted another singer, and we didn't know that, but we were at the right place at the right time. And I had enough guts to go up to Garcia at a show and say, my husband is your next keyboard player, and I need your home telephone number. 
and he believed me and he gave me his, his home telephone number and the rest is history. We hooked up and that was that. You know, I really love listening to Donna Jean. She has a lot to say and uh, she's very proud of the role that she had in the uh, in the band uh, as part of the Grateful Dead, but also just being around music. You can hear that in the rest of her interview. And I just remember uh, Norbert, who is the one who introduced us, Norbert Putman, who was the bass player uh, in Muscle Shoals for many years, uh, producer, played with Elvis, uh, I mean, everybody. He introduced me and we actually had a great interview at his home in Muscle Shoals. Uh, with Donna Jean. And the takeaway to me that whole afternoon after meeting her, I just was smiling. I thought, you know, what a lovely lady who really has a, uh, a real passion for what she's been able to do and very proud of that. And so I'm glad that we could play a segment um, of her interview and her tie to the Grateful Dead as we continue with the Music History Project podcast. The next uh, person that we're going to be hearing from is uh, Michael Paul, known in and around the Grateful Dead circuit as MP. MP was actually introduced to me by Jim Gamble, who was introduced to me by Henry Austin. So a couple of shout outs to some very supportive people who uh, got me in contact with the right folks. MP, what an interesting character. If you don't know him, you're about to uh, learn all about him. I mean, he what a guy about uh, wearing your heart on your sleeve kind of guy. You just know who he is immediately. His claim to fame, uh, you, he really was a, a crew member of the Grateful Dead, but in a different slant than the technical side of the sound, he was all about the visual, uh, going way back to the beginning using overhead projectors and developing ideas of putting gels and liquid and oils together swirling around and giving you those fantastic psychedelic experiences. MP was right there uh, trying to figure out what would work best and grew in his career as as the band grew and developed. So uh, a neat segment, I think, from his NAM Oral History interview uh, will be played here as part of the podcast. So next up, we'll be hearing that segment from MP, followed by a segment from Bob Heil. Can we talk a little bit about some of the gear that you've used over the years and how that's changed? Oh, yeah. Well, the development of the slide projector really changed. And so also did the uh, overhead projectors. Um, we would go in and modify the overhead projectors because they were using 300 watt. And in order to throw 500 to 1,000 feet, which was typical for the large size halls that we were doing, we had to go up to 1,200 watt, which meant we had to go in and put in bigger heat sinks, larger fans, and such. And then I also had to make special lenses for the um, slide projectors. And then also at that time, um, they didn't have small motors that could go down to making one to two RPM. We had to use giant rheostats to uh, modify the electricity to get the motors to go as slow as they could. And we built our own boxes. With, we had to build our own boxes with switches so we could turn them on and off to get them to work and you know um 
I had banks, uh, si 16 slide projectors, uh, 3 to 4 16 millimeter um, movie projectors, um, 5 to 6 overhead projectors, xenon flashes, um, and then we had to also create our own uh, light wheels. And at that time, we, did, we didn't have miniaturization, so we had to have wheels that were three feet big, and also with the boaters. So, you know, we went into getting all, the, going into um, the uh, scientific community and going and getting stands like you would have in chemistry class and hooking up everything to those and you know making our own mountings for the motors and then making our own boxes for switches being able to turn them on and off um, at different and having different banks of them and what we would do what I would did was I created layers so there were like five layers five to six layers deep of different kinds of colored slides and different images and when put together correctly they would go in and out of each other in depth of field so that things images would come in and out of each other then layering then with the liquids on top of that here you have this liquid and all of a sudden out of out of it comes a boat floating or somebody's face you know just like you would be in a dream. So that was the way we were producing the conscious, helping to stimulate the consciousness effect, you know, which went right along with what you were hearing. So you were, what you were doing is we were trying to create the, the sensory feeling of hearing, seeing, and moving because when you do all those then you go you throw yourself into the fifth dimension at that time most people huh wow the fifth dimension what do you mean <laughs> but as we know today you know that's uh, quantum physics it's our way of discovering what we would we would call the psychic wormhole and one of the things I used to use was at that time, people were getting rid of depression glass and glass, you know. Moms uh, uh, during the 40s and the 50s, you know, um, plates, large cake plates and dinner plates and, and cut, and a lot of it was cut crystal. Well, cut crystal goes really good as a prism when you put it on an overhead. So we'd put it on, I made turntables and let them spin. And then we'd do cutouts and lay those on, then put the cut crystal on top of that and then put a liquid on it. So you had the light bending in all these different directions. You had it going through the cut glass, causing its own prisms, going through the liquid, which was colored, and uh, the, allowing the light to bend through the colored liquid, besides being on its own prism. And it was, and it was a white light source that was being projected through. So you had, and 
the cut glass would cause all kinds of derivations in the way it moved. So you had naturally moving light of various kinds. Mm. Lots of fun. Did these bands have specific things for you as far as how to do the coloring and the gels and the lighting and so on? Or were you pretty much at will to do what you needed to do? Uh, pretty much willed to do what we needed to do, but um, we tried to blend it toward whatever they were doing, the style of music they wanted to have. You know, was it more, you know, was it rock and roll or was it blues or was it a blend of those so that, you know, we could keep in tune with the emotional effect of how they wanted to, what they were trying to deliver to the crowd to, you know, to get them where they wanted them, you know, because different songs have different meaning and different style. And when you can couple that together, just like in a great movie, the soundtrack of a great movie uh, goes along with what is going on in the imagery or, you know, and that's what we did. We looked at it that way. This was just a live movie. And how did we, how do we keep it together? You know, if the salmon are running up, up the stream, how do you couple that with the lighting image, you know? Do you, you know, so that you keep it in the flow. And that's what it was all about. And when we had it going well, we called it auto. <laughs> and you realized you didn't have to do anything. The, the less you did, the better it all worked together. One night, I get a call from old George Bales, the, the uh, station manager at the Fox. He said, hey, hi, you still got those big speakers? And I said, yeah, why? He says, well, we got a band here. They came in and they don't have a PA. And can, can you bring them up here? Because he didn't know, but luckily I had built this thing into whatever. That band was the Grateful Dead. And if you know their history, that was the weird time when they played New Orleans and their sound man, Stanley Owsley, was on probation. He wasn't supposed to be out of the state of California. The drug agents followed him that night after the concert confiscated him and the gear, brought him back to California. The band didn't know it. They'd already left for St. Louis. When they got there, no PA. That is a very historic time in the music business. That room over there with all those people would have been different if that night wouldn't have happened, I truly believe, because they had never played through anything like that. Garcia went nuts. He said, you're going on tour. That's right out of here. I said, no, you don't understand. I can't do that. Well, and my roadies are going. And the, the thing that really saved me, Dan, was my roadies, they knew every lick of Grateful Dead music. They were Grateful Dead fanatics. So that really helped because they could mix good, you know. And it was just... The union that night was incredible, and we went on tour, and that hit the front page of Billboard magazine. Ye old music shop gets the Grateful Dead sound contract. How many guys would have 
to do whatever to get that, and we just happened to fall into it. So once again, that was Michael Paul, and after him, Bob Heil. And uh, Bob Heil of Heil Sound really got his start back then with the dead, and he is still in the industry today, still doing what he loves to do, and he is good at it. <laughs> <laughs> so next, we're going to be listening to uh, Rick Turner, who played an important role in uh, the dead set live sound. Uh, so all of the live sound nerds out there, I think you're going to really appreciate this next interview with him. Uh, he's talking, going to talk a little bit more about just the way that he they set up the PAs and just the way that they were able to have such a clear and crisp sound for all the sh- those great the Grateful Dead shows that there were. So uh, here we go, listening to uh, Rick Turner. This is about 1972 or 73. And because of my experience in mixing live sound with the Youngbloods, I wound up sort of, when I was in California, I'd be working on instruments, but then I was on the road doing the PA mixing for the dead for, I don't know, about four or five tours. Um, and we hit a situation at the Boston Music Hall in, um, in Boston where there was no room on stage. The, there was no room for the PA to be arrayed conventionally. and so. They had been experimenting with the PA behind the band in rehearsals. And this was one of those things. We hadn't dared do it live. And it was like, well, PA's going behind the band tonight, first time, boom, and it worked. Um, that eventually evolved, uh, by 74, it evolved into what, what is known as the wall of sound, where they had these. Um, this phenomenal, literally a wall of loudspeakers. There was 450 loudspeakers in the system, you know. And um, each member of the band had his own PA system, essentially. A vertical column of loudspeakers for his instrument. So the instruments were not mixed through a PA. They were individually launched into the, the venue. Uh, the vocals were mixed into a central cluster. Um, and which had very, very good dispersion. And the bass columns, Phil had two columns of 15-inch speakers, and each column was 18 speakers tall. They were 36 feet tall, two of them. And by that time, I had done a um, quad pickup for him so that he could, uh, on occasion, split it off so that each string went through its own stack of nine loudspeakers in quadraphonic. It was phenomenal. That's Sounded crazy. So, Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, the, the, the amazing thing was that um, there was just this phenomenal amount of money around. You know, I don't even know where it was coming from. But, you know, there was just... For one thing, um, they... The dead were having a lot of fun spending their money on on gear. And we were having a lot of fun spending their money on gear too. <laughs> and it just went, it just got to the point where, you know, I mean, it was really incredible. And, and people to this day will say that it's the best live sound they've ever heard, you know, on a good night for the dead. It was the best live. Because the, the, the PA, you could hear it very clearly. Ron and I, Wickersham and I, I think we had the thing set up in outdoors in Santa Barbara one time. And we decided to just walk away and see how far away we could get 
from the PA system and still hear it clearly. I think we were a mile away, and it was softer, but it was clear as a bell, you know. And um, you know everything was in perfect balance and so on. We did, we were just we were way the hell and gone, you know. Yes, that's pretty good. You know? <laughs> and it eventually became uh, too unwieldy to travel with, and. And we, we never got the chance to kind of take it to the next step, which would have been to consolidate some of the speaker cabinets. And, and, you know, it was just, it was a huge number of individual components that all had to be stacked just so and handled just so and plugged in just so. And, you know, I remember at one point I thought, you know, if we could just get a fleet of Austin Mini Coopers and put a loudspeaker in the back of each one and then just forklift them all into a stack you know we just drive the pa to the gig you know <laughs> and uh you know it's, it's kind of pushing the pushing our luck a little bit but it was yeah it was really it was amazing to to be around and to ha and the thing is we solved a lot of incredibly difficult technical issues and you'll see today uh, a return to the concepts used in that PA, which are the line arrays of loudspeakers. So line array controls the vertical dispersion of sound and um, it, it holds it within a reasonable band and then disperses horizontally really well. And they can be aimed to really aim the sound at where the people are. And the idea with that is that you're not splattering sound all over the ceiling and the back walls. You're actually putting the sound where it needs to be. And, and so, you know, for me as, a, as, a, as an instrument maker now, everything that I do is slightly informed by all this experience that I have, you know, in the recording studio, uh, mixing live sound, developing huge PA systems and all that. It all, it all adds to my ability to um, to understand the the instruments that I'm designing and building. One of the things that I've been curious about on uh, when you were mentioning the uh, the Grateful Dead experience, some of those live performances were recorded. Every what? Everyone? <laughs> there, I there is not a single Dead performance that is not recorded on in some format somewhere <laughs> somehow. <laughs> We, when, when I was traveling with them, we were recording from off the, off the PA. Either we were recording with mics or recording off the PA board, or we had the 16-track rig. And a lot, of, a lot of those shows were recorded on cassette, 2-track, 4-track, and 16-track. And then when they got into the whole live tapers section and so on, of course, everything from that era on is recorded. Yeah. But there... There is not a single performance of The Grateful Dead that was not recorded at least to a high-quality cassette machine. And I'd be willing to bet that in from the 60s into the 74, 75, I bet every single one is somewhere on reel-to-reel -reel tape. Hmm. Yeah, okay. everything was recorded. Everything, yeah. So how did that... Um play into the, the, your goal of the live uh, concert experience? Were there challenges of getting great sound recorded that wouldn't have necessarily been the same technique as a live performance setup? Mm, no, to us it was all the same. You know, for us, and that's one of the things about the Grateful Dead's equipment and this whole 
that whole thing is that, and, and one of the things that Bear added to the whole situation was, he didn't, in the 60s, when I first started doing, when I first started recording and so on, everybody thought that there was this huge difference between recording equipment and live equipment and hi-fi. And from Bear's point of view, is there shouldn't be any difference at all. You know, an amplifier is an amplifier is an amplifier. The question is whether you can drop it off the tailgate of a truck or not, you know. And, um, you know, and loudspeakers should be made with, uh, you know, very, very high power capacity and flat response if it's a PA thing. Now, if it's for distortion, a guitar distortion sound and so on, that's another matter entirely. But if you're talking about reproducing sound, what's the difference? I mean, you know, you should be able to use studio monitors as home hi-fi speakers, which we did. All of us had, there was no difference between what we would monitor off of in the studio and what we would listen to at home. I mean, it was the same gear. For me, it still is. I mean, I just, you know, what, why have it be, what's the difference? What, why have it be different? Other than it being a budgetary matter, you know. Um, and then you take it to the live thing. Well, the live gear does have to be more rugged. But in terms of it, the quality of the sound is it should be just as good as, you know. I mean, you don't choose crappier speakers intentionally for live sound, you know. So oh, hopefully. <laughs> hopefully, yeah. So for us, it was uh, the idea was that it's all the same gear. And we were bringing the recording studio versatility to live sound. And then also for us, the the live recording gear and the PA system were absolutely integrated. The, we'd use the same mics. We took, we'd, um, the mics went into a stage box. The stage box uh, had splitter transformers that would send, uh, send a signal to the PA mixer, if there was a mixer at that point. And then, uh, then there was an output that could go to the 16-track recording gear. And so, um, so it was, once again, it's, it's the same gear being used for the PA and for the recording. Mm. And, and, and trying to break down that conceptual difference between, between the two. Now, when you get into things like the, the, the live taping situation, where, you're, where, you're, where the tapers are actually using microphones in the venue, that's interesting, too, because that's, that can only work if it's a really great PA system. Because mm. otherwise you're getting... And, and the directivity of the sound is, is right. So there was always that taper section at the, at the Grateful Dead gigs from the, from the mid-70s on, which is sort of after my era with mm -hmm. them. Um, but the idea is that the, that the PA system would be putting out something that was worthy of recording. Okay, that was uh, the great Rick Turner, uh, one of the mainstays of any NAM show, and uh, a guy who will always spend as much time as you want talking about his favorite subject, which is building guitars and uh, providing sound reinforcement. Smart guy, really, really humble, and uh, a fun, fun guy to talk to. So as we move on with our Grateful Dead podcast uh, this afternoon, I thought uh, we'd have a few words from uh, Helen Meyer, the co-founder of Meyer Sound in Berkeley, California, 
Um, you know, not a big segment, but just something to weigh in on, uh, showing that the Grateful Dead has had a great influence on all manner of elements of the music products industry. And then some final thoughts from Mickey Hart. Do you have any good Grateful Dead stories? Good Grateful Dead stories that I can actually tell you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, they're an interesting group. Um, they don't all just always get together, and you know, it's not always a big loving family. They, they're like a family. You know, there's there's conflict, and there's so we've been involved in a little bit of you know watching that go on. But um, uh, I mean, when Don Pearson was around, and Howard Danchik, and Ultrasound. And it was a real family um, feeling at the at the concerts, mm -hmm. and um, just working with them to create what they were trying to do for the group. It felt really, really good. It still does. It's just bigger now, and it's uh, a different. You know, things have changed, but um, it's still a really interesting group who cares so much about their audience and how it sounds in the audience and how it feels for everyone and uh, how much fun it is. So it's, it's a, that's a fun group. Well, that's one of the things about music that's so attractive is that it's a life-giving, life-enhancing kind of an energy. And it doesn't come without its cost. There's a lot of costs on the way, you know, you have to pay. But it's worth it if you uh, spend your whole life at it because it does take a lifetime to uh, really gather enough moss to really make it worthwhile. Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't usually happen in a flash or in a hit single or something like that. It usually takes a, a cumulative effort over the years to be able to really see what music magic is all about. Mm. If you're playing with magic, then you, have, you know that you can't find it every night. So you have to be patient. You have to do things you would probably not normally do in other professions. You might have to go places that you might not like to go in order to uh, spread the seeds of music for not only for you, for the other people. Uh, you have to practice an awful lot, you know, until, and then get, just get up there for about two or three hours a night and play music. Mm -hmm. So in some respects, you have to understand that this is not free and you have to sacrifice a lot in order to be able to really enjoy what the power of music is all about. You know, those are words, but the actuality of, of uh, spending, like for me, it's been 63 years in the groove. I'll be 67. And I just came back from a three-weeker, you know, three hours a night, sometimes at altitudes over 7,000 feet, um, in the heat, rain, you know, f sometimes freezing cold. Um, after a while, you embrace these things and you actually like them <laughs> because they become part of the challenge. All right, that will conclude it for our Grateful Dead podcast. I encourage everyone to head over to the NAM website, that's namm.org slash library, to check out all of the videos that accompany these interviews, some of which have the full interviews posted, and they are very, very interesting, so I would head over there to check that out. We should have some final thoughts about this episode, and I'll start. Um, Grateful Dead is just one of the coolest bands, in my opinion. It's just such a vibe that no other band really has. Um, and just for the record, my favorite Grateful Dead song is Truckin'. <laughs> it's a really good jam. <laughs> uh, it's definitely been a great podcast. Uh, 
having a mom who is a self-defined hippie growing up. So I definitely was familiar with the dead, but this is a whole nother level of understanding now. And uh, I mean, you can't just think of them as a one-dimensional band by any means. Uh, They're not just the music. There's so much more than that. And so getting to hear interviews from all these people that have had those, uh, have added on to those layers and really created that experience of a show uh, was really cool. And uh, definitely got me into the whole, uh, overhead projector light shows that I now find quite interesting. <laughs> That's really awesome. You know, I, I didn't admit it earlier, but I actually did attend a Grateful Dead concert at the Cow Palace in the Bay Area when I was about 16. I was trying to figure exactly how old I was, but like Helen Meyer said earlier, uh, it's probably best not to go into great detail. Suffice to say, one of my all-time favorite songs um, that the Grateful Dead performed and recorded later was uh, Quinn the Eskimo. And it's a simple tune, but I just really love what they do with that song. And I believe that's the first song that I heard them playing. I think I came in a little late and they were already jamming and I didn't know what song it was. Uh, so the next one that started was, uh, was Quinn the Eskimo, and I think that's why it's near and dear to me. And of course, Sugar Magnolia. I mean, every time that song comes on, I got to pay attention to that. That's a, a great song with a, a lot of great soul. Great band, and I'm really glad that uh, the work that we've done over the years for the oral history program in documenting these uh, interviews can come together in such a way that we pay tribute to those that we didn't get to interview. You know, today, uh, the feeling of uh, Jerry Garcia and all those others that have gone on have been uh, remembered. And I think that's a really great part of, uh, of what we get to do. So I appreciate you all tuning in and listening. And until next time, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Mike Mullins, Dan Del Fiorentino, and Ashley Allison. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have recommendations for future episodes, just shoot us an email at library at nam.org.